and we will be reading that collect uh, two Sundays from now. It's the Sunday closest to November 16th for that collect. Um, and by the time we do, if we do a Bible study like this again, I'm going to rewrite part of it. The Bible. Which bit? The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that, is more, that is worse than a kitty David. <laughs> I told you last week about questions which ex- in Greek expect a no answer. <laughs> I'm going to take that as, a, as one of uh, No, that collect. And so we add a little more to it than simply the everlasting life part. And I started to do that for today, to, to tweak the collect. But then I thought, well, now wait a minute. This is a sub... Uh, a substantive part of what we're going to talk about today, so maybe I better leave everlasting life in it, <laughs> at, least, at yeah. least for this Sunday, on another time. <clears throat> okay, um, a couple of prefatory remarks before we get into this particular text. Um, as we've seen, and I've kept wanting to repeat this so that whatever you take away, at least this you will be taken away. Paul's letter to the Corinthians were written, was written to real people. People that you and I could probably identify with, at least in some ways. In that they had families, they had houses, they had to eat, they had to live in a larger society. Um, and so those sorts of things we share with them. It was a long time ago, however, and as some historians like to say, the past is a different country. So there's some real differences between that situation and ours. One of the most obvious ones for us to think about to get a sense of the early Christian community is that they were not the majority of the population. Not only were they a minority of the population, in this earliest period, they were a minority within the minority to the extent that people like Paul and the disciples who were promulgating this faith were Jews. And so they then began to be more and more a minority within a minority. And part of this, if we continue our study of Paul in other situations, we will see the ways in which the question of the extent to which Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christians. Okay? We've, we've talked about the big distinction in the way Paul divides the world is between Gentiles and Jews because that is the Jewish way of seeing the world. It's us and it's them. We're the Jews, they're the Gentiles. And Jews were a small minority. Paul is growing up in this. We can see this in the way he talks about resurrection and some of the passages that he draws on. He comes from that community. But now he is beginning to see that, wait a minute, if these Jews, if these Gentiles start being included in our group and we say they have to become Jews, what we're saying is the things that Christ has done really aren't necessary. 
And so it's going to be a complicated, long-fought discussion about what the relationships <coughs> will be going forward. We, of course, live in a world which still predominantly, at least in the United States, is Christian in one way or another. One of the recent books called Dominion is arguing that even Christians, even people in the United States are not Christian, are shaped to a large extent by some of the questions and worldviews. That would be an interesting study for us to do sometime, to do, look at that book, Dominion. But so we've got this issue that when we read these texts, we're reading a text, or like a letter that was written to a group of people in the Roman world who were looking at the world around, and when they started becoming part of this movement, they were not the majority. Most people did not think the way they did. And so they were wrestling with this. Over the course of time, certainly by the fourth century of the Common Era, that began to change. And Christianity began to become a power movement. And once that happened, things changed dramatically for the way Christians saw themselves. And that's been developing over the course of a long period of time. We, of course, and Christians at the beginning of the 21st century are beginning to see things differently because we are beginning to have a different place in the larger world. That's part of the transition that we're experiencing. But I want you to be aware then, when we're reading these letters, we're reading people who are just beginning to work some of that out. And that's where, in this particular, well, what we've seen then in that question of knowledge, in the opening chapters of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, there are people who think they know what's going on, and Paul is saying, wait a minute, you don't know what you think you know. And so he's challenging that. And then we've got those divisions over the Lord's Supper in that some people are eating a lot and some people don't have enough to eat. And Paul is saying in that situation, you've destroyed the very essence of what this meal is about in the way you're doing it, and some people are hungry, and some people are eating too much, all right? And the, the, the questions we looked at the other day, fighting about spiritual gifts, and some people saying, I can do this and you can't, and therefore I'm better than you, Paul is also calling that into question in the way this Corinthian community is um, living out their understanding of what being a member of the community is. So these are the sorts of things that we've been looking at. Real people in a real place at a real time. Paul knew them. He, they knew Paul. And as Paul is working out in this letter the questions that they have, we're seeing one small community beginning to understand what it means to be a Christian. All right? So... That's just something to, to bear in mind as we read this. They didn't get it in a Bible at a bookstore, whether online or any other way. They got a scroll, probably, with this written on it. It was hand-delivered, and they picked it up, and there it was. Right? Maybe one of the things we could study one of these days is how it got from that form to a Bible. Mm -hmm. Holly. Yes. Uh, when did Paul's letters become uh, a source of 
importance for people who were becoming Christians or were Christians and how were they circulated? Yep. Great question. Um, remember that passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago from Second Peter that our brother Paul has written about these things in his letters, some of which are very difficult to understand, and some people have twisted them to their destruction. Well, that was probably written by 125. So somewhere around 125, some of Paul's letters started to be collected. All right? And it would, in the, you were talking about Colossians a few minutes ago. At the end of Colossians, it says, take this letter and share it with the community at Laodicea, which was about 15 miles away. Get the letter that I wrote to them, and you read it. So they're beginning to be, by the end of the first century, they begin to share these letters. But there were also people writing at this time and a little bit later who did not like Paul whatsoever. And so they tried to put Paul down, and there were arguments against Paul. So Paul was not immediately thought of as the great person in the Christian movement. And in fact, remember, um, in 2 Corinthians, there will be a number of people who are, Paul will refer to as super apostles. It's those people who follow him around and say, well... What Paul says is okay as far as it goes, but he leaves out too much. And he doesn't understand Jesus the way we understand Jesus. And so they begin to say, you can't follow just Paul. So it's going to be really a couple of hundred years before Paul's letters really get settled out. And even then there will be debates about what Paul really meant by the letters. Because all the, you know, already... Well, in, remember in the, in the opening, the first day we looked at it, we saw that in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, here's what I meant when I, in my first letter. You've misunderstood it. So the whole process is one of growth and fighting and struggling and trying to work out what Paul said. Do the letters written by the people who disagreed with Paul, did they sort of just disappear or? They disappeared over the course of time only to be brought back. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've said something before about um, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, mm -hmm. which was a writing um, probably toward the end of the first century, certainly by the beginning of the second century. And in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, some of the same names and characters show up that are in 1, 2, Timothy, and Titus. All right, Some of the same names. Mm -hmm. The Acts of Paul and Thecla is one in which women have very prominent roles in the growth of the early Christian community. In 1, 2, Timothy, and Titus, the role of women is very suppressed. Mm -hmm. So there you've got a sense, in which, and they both claim to be writing in the authority of Paul, mm -hmm. trying to promote mm -hmm. what Paul thought two very different interpretations of what Paul thought, right? One of the issues there, and this would be another fascinating thing to study in this regard, is that um, as the community began to grow and become a bit established and had some sense of identity in the larger community, there were people in the early Christian groups who said, if we get too far out, everybody's going to have trouble with it. 
-hmm. And so if we are acting too differently from the larger community, we lose our chances of growing. So let's, yeah. let's calm things down. Yeah. And I won't say anymore, just one thing. So this is sort of, I assume, related to the whole question of how, which books became quote unquote canonical and which did not. Yeah, and there were a lot of Gospels that were written that are not included. There were other writings, other letters. There's even a, a book called Third Corinthians, mm -hmm. which most scholars would argue Paul did not write. Mm -hmm. But they were picking up. There's another document called the, the Correspondence of Paul and Seneca. Seneca is that yep. Roman philosopher. And so somebody has written a set of letters and said, this is what Paul wrote to Seneca and what Seneca wrote to Paul. Mm -hmm. All right, so once somebody sort of gets famous in this, you borrow their authority and continue to say, in a new generation, here's what they would say. So, to take Beth's question about, are you, going to re are you rewriting the Bible? Well, in many instances, mm -hmm. people have been rewriting yes, the Bible yeah. from the beginning. Yes, Right? And in fact, the New Testament is a rewriting of some of the other stuff. Well, this is what always confuses me, how anybody can read the Bible literally and build a whole community around it when it's definitely messy, who interpreted it, who wrote it, who picked and, you know, you pick and choose. So how can any Christian religion take anything, or take all of it, literally. Yes. It came right from God. <laughs> um, well, um, what about the American Constitution? Mm -hmm. When was the Constitution ratified? 1789. 1789, yeah. correct. And it was put into effect in October of, eight, of 1790, is that right? First, right. George Washington was sworn in in uh, April 30th, 1791. No. No, first election was in, he was sworn in in April of 1789. All right. About a year and a half after the Constitutional Convention. All right. But it took all that time. But it, to I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. My point is there's a document which keeps changing. All right. But even the stuff that is original. We're debating right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in significant ways. And in some respects, it is the same thing of here's a constitution for this political collection. Mm -hmm. And we keep wrestling with what it means. So we still argue about original intent. And the uh, radio evangelists in the South are saying, God says, yeah, right. the Bible says, yeah. That's the part I have and the, yeah. I, God chose Trump. Yeah. And Amy yeah. and I were driving through the, the coastal areas in November, or, or the time before. There were signs all up, big, huge billboards. God, <coughs> Trump is God selected. And, and just maybe another just analogy with these with these other writings of the of the Pauline period. Uh, there were people who opposed the Constitution. They were called the Anti-Federalists. They wrote a lot of things. For the most part, once the Constitution was ratified and went into effect, the Anti-Federalist writings sort of disappeared and were ignored. At the time of the bicentennial of the Constitution, in 1988 through 1990, a group of scholars at the University of Chicago recovered a lot of these 
anti-federalist writings and then published them and they had been they had been ignored for 200 years and it was useful to see for historians scholars and students etc now that it really was a two-sided argument back in 1787 the fam the, the framers were not demigods who sort of gave wisdom on high and maybe what we were talking about with these other writings of the early christian period that have sort of faded away and are not in the bible Okay, this is another tangent, kind of, but from going to the Constitution, and we have a court to interpret it. When did E class, e, I can't even pronounce it, e, you know, the church courts come? When did the e church courts come? Yes. Almost from the very beginning, again, um, because in the letters of Paul, we have reference to this community in Jerusalem. And the community in Jerusalem, and this gets to, to Jane's question as well, the community in Jerusalem said, we're the original community. According to Acts, that's where the disciples went to get started. And the writer of Luke, both in the Gospel and in the Acts of Apostles, will make Jerusalem the center. So that the disciples are told to go to Jerusalem and wait until the Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So there was a place. Now Paul is going to Rome, uh, finally under arrest, but he goes to Colossae, he goes to um, Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, he goes to all these places. And then the Jerusalem people are following him. Well there in a way is already in the earliest days two communities, each claiming to have a kind of authority. And they're wrestling with it. What do you mean the Jerusalem people are following him? I'm talking about there are missionaries sent out from Jerusalem who follow Paul around and contradict what Paul says. Oh. Yeah, this, this, is, this is exactly what 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 is specifically about that. Or it's the opening part of Galatians. Who has bewitched you, Galatians, that you're turning from the things I taught you? And he refers specifically to people coming from Jerusalem to say, you Gentiles have to be circumcised. And the authority they would claim for that, and all, well, one of the things they will do is talk, to, talk about the stories of Abraham. Interestingly enough, when Paul talks about Abraham, he doesn't go to the circumcision stories. He goes to the stories of Isaac. Because that allows him to talk particularly about the birth of Isaac, um, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, because he wants to say that the person who has faith has the faith of Abraham, who believes that God brings life to the dead. Right? That's the story he goes to, not the circumcision story. So he's able to come up with another text which refutes the people in and that, by the way, could be a segue to this passage because this is precisely what he's talking about here of resurrection. Okay. These are all fascinating stories, fascinating questions. Um, it will be over the course of the time. The, the earliest full list of books that we are currently in the New Testament that is given in any official form exactly as we have it now, is in the early 400s. 
early 4th century, not the early 400s, it would be the early 300s. And it was a letter. Who put out that list? The letter was written by the chief bishop in Alexandria and sent it out to the upper Egypt area and said, these are the books that you may read in worship. They were the authorized version. That's the first authorized version that we have. Now, already by the end of the second century, Irenaeus, who was a bishop in Lyon, um, will give a list of books, but it's not the list that we have now. He has a, a different kind of list. And he's also talking, this is the list that you're to read and use. Don't use the list that these people over here are reading and using because they don't have the truth. Which brings me back to Jane's question. How do you know that the Bible has the truth? Because it's in the Bible. How do you know which books are in the Bible? Because it has the truth. So there is a hermeneutical circle that works in this. All right? And I just as a footnote want to mention that it was all written by men, which has probably been a problem yes. probably over the ages. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Though there's a yeah, and there's a possibility that some of those works that did not get included right. might have been written yeah. by women. But they're not in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Okay? So there there is a sense that what the text what the authoritative text is will be debated from early on. What the faith, the regular fidei is the technical term for it, what that's going to be. And how do you get the regular fidei? You get it out of the Bible. How do you know what's in the Bible? Well, it accords with the regular fidei, the rules of faith. It's, there's, I don't see any way around that. So that when you talk about reading the Bible literally, um, it's a phrase that needs lots of parsing of what it means to read literally. And even though, in my judgment, and I, I admit that it, it's the way I've come to see this over a long period of time, and it is my way, not only mine, but the way I would say, see it is, um, this is a document, which is a historical document, Whatever else we may say about it, it arose in the midst of a community that is shaping and creating new ways of thinking. And what we do then is read it as carefully as we can to understand what's going on. And then whether we like it or not, we're going to be responding and making sense of it from the context in which we are and the way we use words and how we interpret those words. So literal, in some respects, is a meaningful term, but we bring so much to it. And most of us will bring to it a certain understanding of what Christianity is supposed to be, and we will find in the text those things that support it, and we will conveniently overlook the things that don't. And that's the way we create our world. But it's exactly what's going on in the debates today about the Constitution. We have an idea of what it's supposed to be. We say this is what the Constitution says, whether it says it or not. So that communities make Bibles, communities interpret Bibles, and... I think what frustrates me is, to me, the bottom line in all the readings that I've done over the of my years is that it comes down to 
we're supposed to treat others as we would like to be treated. And yet, somehow, when people are reading the Bible literally, that's not what they come away with. They come away with a lot of ways to keep other people out of their life or to disregard yeah. this or that person based on some random thing. And it, all the writings come back to that. I mean, that is the central theme to me. Sometimes gets lost when people yeah, start yeah. quoting passages that they pick and choose. Right. My only response, and I'm not trying to say this critically to you, but that you want you to think about. That's what you just did. You picked a passage and said it comes down to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we all agree with you. Paul <laughs> <laughs> keeps coming back. He does to come that. back to it. I, I, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, yeah. but he keeps trying to say to people, become, you have to be kind to each other. You can't stuff yourself while this person is starving. You can't take all of this and leave nothing for somebody else. That that was the central message of everything that Jesus preached. Um, and, you know, if everybody comes back to that, but then picks out little parts yeah. to denigrate that, it seems... Um, unfortunate. And it becomes especially important when the people who say it have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then can act on it in ways that if you agree with us, you're okay. If you don't agree with us, mm -hmm. you're in trouble. And that comes back to that notion earlier. It's only when Christianity, or Christians begin to have political power mm -hmm. and they can start exercising authority right. over others. That's where things really got difficult, That's I would argue. Yeah. There are two great commandments. Right. One is mm -hmm. to love God, the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that's in the Bible. It is. And yeah, I think that is... One from Deuteronomy, the other from Leviticus. Yeah, quote, well, quote, unquote, that's what Jesus talked yeah. about. And he was quoting the Torah. Right. So, to me, that's the essence. Just, I just want to throw into the mix that one of the things that I think I wrote this down that I would like to do sometimes to deal with the really difficult sayings of Jesus, the things that we don't want to, that don't necessarily go along easy. with that. The hard sayings. And, and yeah. 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 And they are. And there are some hard sayings. In part because and, and this, this is one of my pet peeves, having grown up where I grew up, um, of that claiming to have the truth about what it is and we're going to put it into effect the same way the Pharisees did in the New Testament. Right. There's a lot uncle. of hypocrisy. I had an uncle, yeah. Bogalusa, Louisiana, and <laughs> listening to him pontificate on why certain people couldn't come to his church just made me crazy. Um, you know, he was a good Baptist and I was a rebellious Episcopalian, but we just, I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. Yeah. Glad you did. <laughs> I got uninvited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, it was a pain I knew a large what number. What do we do about that? I mean, Larry, you must have, do you have some relatives in Alabama with whom you theologically disagree? Do you try to calmly discuss it? Or is it, do you just never go there? Or, or is there an in-between? <laughs> Those are not when you're 16 and annoying. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Maybe now I can go there, but I couldn't then. Um, I'd like to do that in another setting, okay. another occasion.
I'm glad we had this conversation. I want, I would like to switch though, because there are a couple of things I want to say about this passage that I think are important for you to think about, because I suspect some of you, I pointed out at the beginning that, that this also is reflecting conflict in Corinth, and part of the conflict, at least from Paul's perspective, are those people who said there is no such thing as resurrection. And I suspect there's some people sitting in this room who say, well, I don't buy that resurrection stuff. And I, I, want, us to, I want us to get that on the table yes. as well. Because for Paul here, clearly it's very important. And we, I want us to see a little bit about, at any rate, what, what he's saying. Right? Um, it's more than important. <laughs> it's, you don't believe that Christ has conquered death and your faith is in vain. Yes. Mm. That's putting it on the table. That's putting it on the table. That's in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. Top of page 2. So, clearly, you're right, Robert. It's a tremendously important passage. Um, but you've also got some people um, who are asking, well, if there's this resurrection, what is it supposed to be like? What does it mean to have a resurrected body or a spiritual body? So he's going to wrestle with that a little bit. Um, so there's some, there's some problems here about this. Oh, and the, the other one, which I left off the page here, as I told you I was going to leave off the page, when you want to talk about the things we like and we use those and the things we don't, we just conveniently overlook. All that stuff about being baptized on behalf of the dead. Okay? <laughs> So there it is right here in 1 Corinthians. So, but we just sort of pretend that's not there and do what I did, and you just leave it out. Off the page. Uh, you know, you gloss it. Exactly. exactly. Yes, yes. And just about everybody else. Collecting all those names. I'm serious. It, you, you collect the names, and then your people are baptized in the name of those because they're not getting on. So they took that passage and made it a central tenet. And we just take that passage and put it in our hip pocket and pretend it's not there. Okay. All right. Um, now, um, one of the questions Paul is dealing with then is whether or not there is resurrection. Now, Paul's starting point for asking the question, Paul's starting point for answering the, the question is his central tenet that Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? That's the fundamental point. Okay? That's the core of his understanding. The significance of that is, for Paul, Jesus' death and resurrection was a history-changing moment. It's the equivalent of Exodus. It's the equivalent of the return from Babylonian exile. Okay? So it is, a, it is, we could put it this way, the death and resurrection of Jesus was a history-changing moment. You've got to start with that. That's the core. That's the beginning and the end of Paul's understanding of what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, he uses a lot of metaphors to say what that means, to express what it means a lot of different ways of talking about it. Sacrifice, atonement, 
Justification, righteousness, adoption are all different ways. And that's only five or six. I didn't count them. Five or six of the dozen or so different ways he has to talk about it. <laughs> Reconciliation being another. All right? So you've got all these different ways. Now, if it is one way, why do you need so many words to say what it is? Because Paul sees it as so fundamentally important, it's life-changing. It's history-changing. Echoing someone like Isaiah, the latter part of Isaiah, Paul will say it's a new creation. Well, now, what's the first thing in the Nicene Creed? In what else? The maker of heaven and earth. That's the fundamental statement, both for Judaism and Christianity, quite frankly. God is the creator. It's the first words of Genesis. God is illustrated as creating. All right? That's what God does. So if you ever read God's Vita, <laughs> the first thing that's going to be listed in the, on the Vita is, I created heaven and earth. That's defining in, in Jewish and Christian thinking. That defines what God is. So that Paul will say, the death and resurrection of Jesus brings a new creation. Now that anticipates and draws in that concept of apocalyptic that we talked before. That apocalyptic means the end of the world is at hand and everything is being redone. Picking up the language of prophets, both pre-exilic pre -exilic prophets means before the Babylonian exile, or the prophets are like the latter part of Isaiah, which is when the exile is coming to conclusion and they're looking to a time of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding Judea and go back to repopulating the land. They talk about it in terms both of a new exodus to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, and they also talk about the greening of the Holy Land in the sense that the springs will flow, the gardens will grow, and it will be new life. That's part of the imagery so that when you come here to Paul, one of the things he will talk about is in the death and resurrection, all the things in history that have gone awry, whether it's in the life of individuals or in the course of nations, it's going to start all over. So that it, one of the other things that we commonly pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All right. So Paul is saying then, this is the fulfillment of all of that, and it's the start of something new. One, one of the things I find fascinating is I'm on chapter 15, mm -hmm. and he says, um, yes, Christ died and was resurrected and came back, and by the way, he appeared to the 12 yeah. apostles, yeah. and then, by the way, he appeared, he appeared to 500 other people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, it's very fascinating, Mark, because it it's right. like, think of when this was written. It was written about 50 AD, give and take, yeah. and it's like, he appeared to all these people, and no one is coming up and saying this isn't true. It's like with Jacqueline Kennedy when, when the Kennedy was shot, and if I said to you she was wearing an orange suit, you would say, no, she's not. She's wearing a pink suit. There, nobody's arguing with what Paul says. He's got these 500 witnesses who are all saying, yeah. yeah. 
Except remember the reason he where that goes immediately after this. How can some of you say there is no resurrection? So there clearly were people saying there's no resurrection. Yeah. But you're right. That's exactly that's where he starts. That's where he starts. And 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 you're right. And and watch look at it carefully. I'm delivering to you what was delivered to me. He's simply passing on what he's heard. Now, in that list, uh, some of that is, shows up only here. When you read the Gospels, of the list of who Jesus appears to. Yeah, it, 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 Paul has some things here that don't show up in any of the narratives in the Gospels. But some do. Some, some do. Some of these yeah. 500 people. Yeah. I, yeah. I found the 500 people fascinating. Yeah. It's not just me. Yeah. There are 500 other people yeah. who saw this too. Yeah. 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 Okay. Are you, so are you asking why do we not hear more from them? Or why, uh, or uh, is that because they're going along with this and they agree? Mm-hmm. Like the pink, the pink suit, the orange suit? You know? mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me, let, let's, let's take that for a moment and look at that. That's on page one. And you'll see I bullet pointed them. Okay, Carol, do you want one of these? So it's it's the bullet point on page one. Because in some respects, this is one of the earliest creedal statements for Christianity. Because I handed on to you as of first importance what I what I in turn had received. One, that Christ died for our sins. What's the next few lines? Next few words? In accordance with the scripture. In accordance with scripture. So there already Paul is drawing his understanding of Jesus from Jewish scripture. So he's using scriptures to support his claim. All right, so scripture is one of them. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures. And that, by the way, is language that shows up at the Creed, too. Yeah. Would you go back to where in the Scriptures does it say that in the, in the Torah someone's going to come and die for all your sins? Um, first of all, you've got to think of Scriptures not simply as Torah. Mm-hmm. Torah is the first five books. Sometimes it includes the whole. All right, just follow through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They constantly are referring, in their passion narratives, mm-hmm. they're constantly referring to. Scriptures. In accordance with the scripture. A lot of them from Isaiah. They do. Pardon? Go ahead, sir. 53, the suffering servant. Yeah. <coughs> that would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're constantly referring to it. In some fact, some people would argue that Mark's story of the crucifixion is simply based on a pastiche of a collection of sayings from Jewish scriptures, and he's developed a story. Meg, you wanted to. No, just the books from Isaiah. Oh, yeah. yeah, some of them are. Yeah, Isaiah, Malachi, um, just any number of Psalms. A lot of things from the Psalms will add. Psalm, Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22, some people would say you read the Passion narrative in Mark. He simply followed Psalm 22. Um, so, okay. So that's in accordance with the scripture. Sarah, so you were thinking something else. The, the fact that it seems to be a. a um, proto or semi-creedal statement. So it tells me that actually it wasn't believed, that this was a teaching that you had to kind of insist was the truth. So um, in some ways there I, I can see it as a, as a, everybody didn't believe it. You had to keep insisting on this. 
um, as, a, as a creedal statement. Oh, I, I think that I think there were doubts, yes, but mm -hmm. but he's saying 500 people saw this, mm -hmm. and in my ear, I just thought, well, that's interesting. Yep. <laughs> Who were the 500 yep. people, and why aren't, if this didn't happen, wouldn't they be protesting? I mean, yeah. again, yeah. like the people are, the Biden Well, that's very interesting. This may go back to things we've talked about in previous weeks, Larry, but these, this is written in these Corinthians, this is all before the Gospels have been published. Yeah. Yeah. So what they know about Jesus is presumably through various oral traditions. So they've heard something about the resurrection. What have they heard about other aspects of Jesus' teaching? All the parables and the sermons and the miracles and so forth that are recounted in the Gospels. What do they know of that? It, it's hard to say, mm -hmm. quite frankly, because you're arguing from silence. I would, I would argue, Eric, that probably a good chunk of what shows up in the Passion narrative predates the writing of the Gospel of mm -hmm. Mark. I don't think he invented that story or wrote that story himself from scratch. Mm -hmm. I think that was part of what was already being said. Um, you all, we've also seen what we've referred to, we didn't read it, but in 1 Corinthians 11, he also uses this language about tradition. Mm -hmm. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Mm -hmm. That is part of the tradition that's okay. being passed on, and that's already looking at something that Jesus' death has some sort of significance that is a major import. But all of this is, is things related to the passion, to yeah. Jesus' death. All of Jesus' teachings that preceded that. Um, it's being collected. It's being collected yeah, and, orally. And it's also probably being written down in snippets. Mm -hmm. So people will collect certain kinds yeah. of sayings and they will get written down. It will take somebody like Mark to put it into a biographical kind of narrative. That's, I think that's the first one that's extended in this way. Mm -hmm. But there are enough differences in some of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. There are also each of those Gospels <coughs> sayings that nobody else right. has. So these are being passed on probably in urban centers mm -hmm. where you begin to have people who begin to start writing things down. And then these preachers who go from place to place, like Paul, he wasn't the only one. They take it from one place to another. And so it is simply crude over the course of time. I mean, it gets to, and I mentioned this at our first session, that I thought Paul talked a lot about Jesus crucified, but not all that much about Jesus alive. And yeah. I must admit, one of the most problematic verses I found in this last chapter is verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul's conception of the kingdom of God is something I have problems with, if that's what he means by it. Well, uh, which part of that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? How does Paul address your question here? Well, in I, this I, chapter, I, I think he tries to to talk about it in in what follows, or in what precedes, or what follows. But yeah, uh, I mean, as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Yeah. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Yeah. Then he talks about the perishable body must put on imperishability. The mortal body must put on immortality. And what does he say it's like? What does he say it's like? Yeah. 
that spiritual body. Incorruptible, in yeah. imperishable. Yeah. A mystery. What else? What else is it about that he says about this notion of human fleshly bodies and spiritual bodies? They're, they're fundamentally different. Yeah. But also the, 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 the distinction between the flesh and the spirit isn't between the material and the sort of super, super material, but, but the material transformed yes. in the resurrection yeah. into a renewed body, which is the body spirit, yeah. the spiritual body. Yeah. I was just going to say what I seem to remember from study program is that there were two words, and I'm not sure about this, that there was a word for boxes. Soma means flesh. Sarkos. Sarkikos is the adjective. Okay, so, and that Paul was saying there is just more, it's yeah. not that there isn't the the bodily life, but there is more, which which is also the bodily life, but transformed, right. which is sort of what he's getting at. As I I say it all through this, that yeah. you know it's a new life and, and live it. Yeah, isn't that what he's saying? The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. Exactly, and that's that the goes transformation. That's that's the transformation. It's also that's also a way in which Paul will define what resurrection means. It's new life. And God is the one who brings life. So God breathes into Adam, makes Adam a life, a living being. All right? Christ dies, is resurrected. That brings the resurrected spiritual body. So that's the parallel. He's got two sections where he compares Adam and Christ. Both of them have to do with creation, and both of them have to do with new creation. And I think it's interesting that um, early Christian art didn't talk about the crucifix. It was all about the resurrected life. And the, um, and the visual, the visual images were all about um, feasting yeah. and beautiful pastoral landscapes and the good shepherd. They're very, um, very flesh material. Yeah. Yeah. They were very physical. Yeah. And that was about the, the Jonah story life. shows up very frequently. Yeah. On early Christian sarcophagi, right, right. because it, the Jonah story is a way yes, of being swallowed right. by the whale, being Lazarus. spit up, and he yeah. comes back. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted about Paul and the other parts of Jesus' life. I just wanted to say I think the reason those aren't in Paul's letters is because he was writing letters about things people were arguing about, and the, the parts about his life at that time were not a matter for argument. It was this stuff that was a matter for argument. Um, I don't want to get too granular about this, but he seems to be saying, how can you say there's no resurrection? I have eyewitnesses. Yes, that's what he says. That is one thing. Um, that's one thing, he says. Yep, I agree. And he says, um, he appeared to 500, he appeared to James, he appeared to the apostles, and lastly, he appeared to me, but he didn't really appear to him. He heard of Jesus' voice didn't actually see him, right? If you go to Acts. Yeah. Um, but the, ultimately, what this rests on is, is not so much I've got eyewitnesses, but I've been proclaiming this. And Peter has. And Paul and uh, Apollos. Um, 
The basis for that is I wouldn't be proclaiming it if it weren't true because I'm getting it straight from God, mm-hmm. right? I think that would be part of the argument. Mm-hmm. I do. And we're still saying that. Yeah. The other thing that I, that's a great, great thing to pull up, and it's one of the things I wanted to make sure we looked at. Of, yeah, he cites all those things, but where he, where he explains is about his own seeing. And I've seen, I'm the least of them, but I've done more than all of them. Yeah, not that I'm bragging. Yeah, not that I'm bragging, but I've done more than all of them. They may have seen this, they may have done that, but I've been there, I'm in the trenches. That is the flow of the argument. So that when you lays all that out, and then the 500, yeah. Peter, yeah. James, yeah. But I've done it, and I worked harder than all of them. I've suffered more than all of them. So that then, but again it becomes, it goes back to what we were looking at a little bit earlier about having rights. I'm an apostle, I have a right to be paid. But I'm not going to insist on that right because there's something more important than rights. It's serving other people. So I've done it. I think that's where it goes. So that Paul is always coming back. He will cite those things, he will cite scripture, but it comes down, I'm in the trenches doing things for people. I'm proclaiming the gospel. Now, his gospel is fundamentally death and resurrection, I think. So that, again, when he comes back to make that comparison between Adam and Christ, where he wants to come down is that God brought life to Adam. God brought life to Christ by raising him from the dead so that God is always in the business of bringing life. But in the end, what's at the end? Yeah, good. Because there's a chronology here. And it's not that everyone gets resurrected, but everyone gets to sort of Yeah, everybody gets what? Um, becomes sort of part of God. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, so that God may be all in all, and that's, that's pretty amazing. I, and is, is that the apocalypse? Or... Interesting question, Holly, because that's a fundamental problem that's being raised here. Of what is this going to be? Every, the, the resurrection is there, but what's it going to be? And, and it's not all those green pastures. No. In fact, one of the most striking things, if you read this very imaginatively, one of the most striking things about this, is Paul never tells us anything about it. There's no description whatsoever <laughs> of what heaven is. Yeah. At one point, I, I was reading something, and the Pope got into discussing the moment that the soul leaves the body. Mm. You don't want to go there. Mm. You don't want to go there. You're just getting yourself into like the angels on the head of a pin. <laughs> I think Paul is very wise here. He doesn't. He, no, he doesn't go there. I agree. He doesn't. It's it's, it's, a, it's amazing. There are other places that do. Uh, and uh, though though interestingly enough, even in the Book of Revelation where you've got streets of gold and all this as, as some of the concluding part of it. But, but Revelation is simply picking up on passages in Isaiah. Ezekiel has a description of, the, of what the next world will be. Tobit has a description of Jerusalem with the gold and all that sort of stuff. So it was, a, it was the sort of thing that was going on in apocalyptic writings. It just, 
It's part of the artistic imagination. All right? Artists do those things. Painters do those things to try to visualize something, doing it this way or that way so that to try to draw the, the, the readers or the observers into sort of expanding your mind of, to, to think about things. Yeah. I have a question about the timeline. Yeah, all right. The Pope says that when you die, you go to heaven or you don't. Mm-hmm. Here Paul is saying, you die, go to dust, and then at the last trumpet, you will be resurrected. Yeah. So what about the interval, or does the interval not exist? He doesn't say. He's not interested in it, apparently. Well, is there a teaching on that, or are we just supposed to sort of say, well, I don't know? Well, Paul seemingly said, I don't know. Well, Paul said one more thing than that. Look at um, verse 51, page 3. After going through all this, of all this talking about the trumpets, or well, it said this is where it's actually going to be. Look, I'll tell you a mystery. Paul does that at several points in letters when he gets backed into a corner and he doesn't know what to say. He will say, I'll tell you a mystery. So there's a sense in which some of these things nobody can know. Because if it's after death, we haven't been there. You know, it, 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 there's nothing there to know how to talk about. Now, again, there will be other writers who do. If you want to see a very dramatic, the, the most dramatic, image that I can think about in any of this comes from a writing called the Apocalypse of Peter. Apocalypse remembers the Greek word revelation, that the book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse. Well, people started writing apocalypses all over the place. One of the most interesting is the Apocalypse of Peter, which uh, you remember the paintings of, um, is it Bruegel? Bosch. Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch. Those, those vivid pictures of what heaven and hell are like, he got it out of the Apocalypse of Peter, which is a verbal description of what heaven and hell are going to be like. So that if this was your sin in life, this is what it's going to be like for you in hell. Very graphic description. So there were people who will who try to come up with that, but Paul, for some reason, Paul doesn't go there and doesn't give you an image. And so the passage that Holly pointed out at the beginning of this is to me it's, it's the most dramatic thing that Paul says and if I ever try to figure out what is going to go on or what is going on in the future it's, it's Paul's understanding here in chapter 23 mm-hmm. verse 23 so that um, well, start in 20 in fact, Christ has been died, uh, raised from the dead, the first fruits, all right? The first fruits of those who died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as in Adam all die, or here all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in its own order. Now, this is where Paul begins to get into the sort of question you're raising. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, that's one possible translation, but as I give you in the square brackets, you could also say that then comes the end. You can translate it very readily and very appropriately 
then comes the rest. And that's the logic. As I read the rest of the logic, it's not then comes the end, but then comes the rest, meaning all the other people. Then, um, then comes the, the rest when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God. Now watch this unfold. And, and I've given you the translation here. Um, one of the problems of this particular passage is that it uses pronouns throughout. And one of the challenges is trying to figure out what the pronouns refer to. Do they refer to Jesus or do they refer to God? So that, that's it's simply a problem in reading this passage in Paul. And won't try to do a whole lot with that at this point, but let me simply continue to lay it out and the way it comes out in, in English. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed, the he I think here means Jesus, he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he, and I think this one again is Jesus, must reign until he, God, has put his, God's enemies, under his, Jesus' feet. Mm -hmm. Do you see the way it goes? I think that's the best way to, to parse this. Then, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So even though Paul will argue that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the new creation has begun, people still die. In fact, if you go to 1 Thessalonians, Paul must have said something like this to the Thessalonians. And then when Paul gets the report from Timothy that everything's going well in Thessalonica, he brings questions to Paul and one of the questions Paul had to address was, well, you said Jesus is coming, and Jesus is going to bring this kingdom and is going to raise everybody, but some people have died. What's going to happen to them? Sort of like your question, Elizabeth. That's what the Thessalonians experienced, people dying. And then Paul comes back and says, well, there will be this trumpet, then they will all be taken up into the air first this, and then this one. So it's been a question from the very beginning. Let me do one other thing, Eric, and then, and then come back. So, again, verse 25. He, Jesus, must reign until he, God, has put all his, God's enemies, under Jesus' feet. The last enemy to destroy is death. For God, has, and it's actually in Greek, says he, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Quotation from Psalms. Okay? Now, but when it says all things are put in subjection, now here's Paul interpreting the psalm. Remember the psalm is, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 110 is a, is a royal psalm, it's a coronation psalm. So this is, a, the psalm is saying, God has put all things in subjection under the king of Judah's feet. That's the historical context. Paul has taken this to be an apocalyptic eschatological saying so that God has put all things under his feet and takes the his as Jesus, as the son, which is what the king was called. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain this does not include the one. And who's the one here? God. God. God did not put himself in subjection to Jesus. All right? So what is the all here? It does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus. I lost my place. All right. 28. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself, i.e. Jesus, will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him. So in the end, Jesus becomes subject to God. So that, now that's the, the so that is a result clause, right? You know, result. All of that stuff that he's been arguing from chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 20, comes to consummation at the end of verse 28, so that God may be all and in all. That, I would argue, is as close as Paul ever comes to describing what it's all about. And it becomes a kind of unifying of everything in God. A black hole. <laughs> Paul would not call it a black hole. Paul would call it the epitome of light. So You're taken into the light. It's the opposite of a black hole, I, I think, but I'm not a physicist. I've been so, so, way over stuff. So... If that is what Paul is saying here, is he saying at the end that God may be all in all? You sort of go back to Genesis 1 1? No, you go back to Genesis 01. Oh, what? Before <laughs> let there be light. That was pretty quick. Before let there be light. Yeah. Yeah. Before the creation, God was. Yeah. And in the end, God is again. God. Well, Paul doesn't discuss this, but I think right. Paul would argue it's always one. So when, you, when we talk about Christian mysticism, or when you want to talk about the Buddhist stuff of all being one, this part of Paul is exactly that. Everything is in God. Everything is in God. And in the end, that will come to a resolution that God will be all in and all. It's a remarkable statement. So it's all about an unveiling an unveiling yeah. of what is. Yeah. Well, it, it, to put it in terms I can understand, there's going to be an apocalypse. God is putting Jesus in charge of that apocalypse and he's going to clean things up. Um, he's going to have absolute power over everybody except God himself. And after he's cleaned things up, he's going to hand the cleaned up kingdom back over to God including himself. Mm -hmm. And that's the argument, right? It's what J.R.R. Tolkien says. <laughs> A unity of all in God yes. at the very end. And if there's no such thing as time... Like yeah. 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 I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and that's fundamental again. It, it's one of, one of the things that just has become clearer and clearer to me the more I read this document that the fundamental way Jews and Christians think is historical. And once, you, once, you, once that becomes the category that you describe things, that's the fundamental way you understand 
existence is historical, then that's where you go. If you want to talk about it ahistorically, then you could go the mystical thing, and it is the unity of all things, and you're taking up into the essence of God. But that's not that's hard for us because we're so historically. It's the way we understand. Aristotelian logic is not his thing. No. No. I found myself thinking a couple of times as this was going on that the key may be in Acts chapter 9, Paul on his way to persecute the church, and he has this visionary moment. Mm. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, and you are persecuting. So that it's a, a meeting with Jesus that incorporates for him resurrection, the changing, the whole changing of his life. Um, and I found myself wanting to sort of meditate on that, move into that story, perhaps instead of the the larger uh, uh, apocalyptic stories and so on, because it's it whatever it is, it's happening in Paul right there. And Paul would argue, I I think you're exactly right. That there's a sense in which we we tend to think of this in time because it's the way we think most of us in a, in a kind of Western context. Um, but there's enough in Paul um, that he wants to put it into any particular moment. Yeah, right. Now right. becomes it. And that's the way physics is understanding the world. Yep. Is that, you know, what we call after, before, and after is illusory. Time is a continuum. Yeah. At the subatomic level. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing that hits me when we read this is any of us who know the Messiah know that incredible part when behold I tell you a mystery which I think is a baritone or a tenor and it's well sung it's, yeah. it's mysterious and it's just gorgeous and then the trumpet sounds and the song comes the aria, the trumpet shall sound if you don't know it Google just, behold, I tell, you, I tell you a mystery by handle it, by, yeah, and then go on and listen to it. Maybe come here a few different performers because it is. Or listen to any DAC radio in any mass. Right. Which has right. the same. Right. Mystery. Mm-hmm. And it's Halloween tomorrow. Yeah. 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 DAC radio. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the, from the six, traditional 1662 Book of Common Prayer, that's the reading for a funeral service. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Well, it's actually verse, it's, it's this chapter from verses 20 to the end yeah. in the 1662 book. And it, it's also part of the anthems mm-hmm. in the funeral service now. Mm-hmm. Part of yeah. this shows up there as well. Um, okay. Um, we touched on by your raising questions and making mm-hmm. points. Robert, you brought us into one. Holly, you brought us into one. Um, uh, We've raised the fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what I would argue in this, in Paul, is that he is bringing this finally as a way of talking about all those other things that have been going on from 1 Corinthians 1. 
all the problems, the difficulties, the tensions that are going on in Corinth on the day-to-day basis that is creating such tense divisions within the community. And Paul can talk about your members of the body together. He can talk about any number of other ways in which you ought to be looking. Here in the last chapter, he puts it into the context of God's created order and God's recreating. So in essence, in a way saying, all the stuff you're wrestling with and you're futzing around with is nothing but futzing around. Put it in perspective, folks. This is the bigger picture. If you want to think about God, God is the one who creates. Who creates. Not who created. But God is the one who creates and is always creating. And resurrection is not something that simply happens out there. It has already happened. And it happens. So God raises the dead. Now, I suppose it would be great if Paul gave us a few more clues about what it really going to look like. But he seems to be content with announcing you're living a resurrected life now. There's a the voice from the throne that's actually the last scripture I've got in my list here for Sunday. But there's that voice from the throne that says, Behold, I make all things new. Right Isaiah the again coming in. Yeah. 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 It is the newness. And this, um, again, when you, when you look at <coughs> Paul's definition of faith is most clearly articulated in Romans 4 when he talks about the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Uh, and the faith of Abraham is when God said, you're going to have a son. Yeah. And he says, like hell I am. <laughs> we, can't, we can't conceive. Sarah's 99 years old. Come on. What are you talking about? But the, 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 the argument is here, Paul, Paul's way of reading that story is, but Abraham said, well, God, if you say you're going to, I'm going to have a child, I believe. And but it's Sarah at that died. point, it's at that point that Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's what he and the righteousness there then is that he believed God brings life from the dead. And that's what Paul is arguing here at the end of the Corinthians. If you want the primary way to think about it, God is the one who creates and makes life. And if that's the God you believe in, it's going to have a, a correlation to the way you live and treat people. And if finally God will be all in and all, it also means that God is all in and all. And you ought to think about that when you deal with one another. So, that that letter that came to the Corinthians, to Paul, and he had to sit down and write all this, 
it came out of people. Think of the poor scribe who had to write it. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who had to read it. Because I'll, uh, I'll show you uh, one of these days. I'll, I'll bring it. I've got a, cop, a facsimile edition. Well, I gave it to the library in college. A facsimile edition of the earliest Bible. And when you read Greek, there's no paragraph divisions. There are no sentence divisions. There are no word divisions. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, All right. Good thing I didn't translate. <laughs> it's been fun. I yeah. appreciate yeah. your thank chance. Thank you very much. Thank you. A lot of fun. Pardon me? Encore. Encore. There'll be an encore. No, no, I'm just going to turn this off. Oh, my. Pardon? Yes, she's